Jeremiah chapter 31. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Matthew chapter 2. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. 
we're, we're in a season, uh, for those who understand a little bit of the history and reasoning behind how the church calendar developed through the first five centuries of the church, uh, that is called the 12 Days of Christmas. And the 12 Days of Christmas run from December 25th to January 26th, which if you count the 25th and I said January 26th, didn't I? January 6th, I'm sorry. Um, if you count January 6th and de December 25th, that's actually 13 days. But if you count 24-hour uh, periods, it's uh, 12 days. But anyway... Um, I thought before I did this, uh, you know, John, normally, uh, as you know, uh, I teach at 9.30, and I'm kind of doing major themes of what our vision and our purpose at Grace Christian Fellowship is, and what we're trying to accomplish, why, why we're doing this. And John uh, uses uh, what's called a lectionary, which is a three-year cycle of readings, to, uh, and then uh, does what's called expository teaching, where he... Uh, takes us through the the meanings of those chapters, and especially in light of the church calendar. So, <clears throat> since we get new people all the time, I thought I would review just the church calendar concept quickly, and uh, the whole lectionary concept quickly. First Timothy four twelve, Paul tells uh, Timothy to do a series of things. Verse twelve: Let no one look down on your youthfulness, and uh, Verse 14, not to neglect the gift that was put in him through the laying on of hands with prophetic utterance. But in verse 13, he says to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. And this was not just any kind of public reading of Scripture, because the church grew out of the synagogue system. During the, uh, oh, starting in 722 B.C. with the first Babylonian captivity, followed later in 586 B.C., with the southern kingdom or the kingdom of Judea's captivity. Um, even after the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, only about 3% of, of Jews returned to, to Jerusalem and to Israel. As is always the case, God always has a remnant of people who always pioneer back to his, uh, the heart of his purposes and the center of his purposes. And they have a spillover benefit for all God's people, but most God, of God's people want to stay where their religion has taken them and don't want to go that distance. And that's kind of the messages of Ezra and Nehemiah, the prophets, and so forth. So starting from that time and continuing through uh, Alexander's conquering of what was uh, Israel, and the, the, eventually the Romans, I guess I'm going to have to take off my sweater. I was hoping I could wear a short sleeve shirt and get used and get away with wearing a sweater today, but... I, don't think I can do that. It's too warm up here for me. Um, hopefully this comes off with the headset on. Should work, right? Yeah, good. Um, so, um, starting in that time, m more and more, including and actually most uh, descendants of Abraham were not living in the, in the land of Israel and living in the promised land. Most of them were scattered throughout uh, what, what is today Syria, Turkey, Egypt, Greece, even all the way to Italy uh, in the time of, of course, Alexander and then following in the Roman Empire. So at the time of Christ, 
There are Jews living all over the Roman Empire, and the majority of Israelites don't live in Judea. And so what developed in, in the couple hundred years before uh, the coming of Jesus, it was a, an institution called the synagogue, which is Greek, sin is, is a, a synonym for with, logos, word, a place where the Jews gathered to be with the word. And they would have scripture readings, but they wouldn't have just any old scripture readings. The scripture readings would correspond to the major Sabbaths and, and the major festivals that God had uh, told Israel to celebrate every year for two purposes. One, it was a teaching tool so that the, the, the deeds of God would be remembered from generation to generation. So if you, you know, like if you've never told your children, uh, once they're a certain age and able to understand, if you've never told them uh, you, the fullness of your testimony and what God did to bring you to Christ and so forth, you're really missing an opportunity. That is really an important thing to do. Make sure, uh, especially with second, third, fourth generation Christians, that they know how God brought you to Christ. And um, so uh, that was the whole purpose of the festivals, which I have listed here in my notes somewhere. And uh, hopefully we'll get to that and talk to them a little bit about them. But part, so the scripture readings weren't just any old scripture readings, but they rehearsed and, re, and reviewed and re, renewed the, the covenant history of Israel. Uh, we have a teaching called Eight Ele Biblical Elements of All Covenants. And one is that all covenants have ceremonies of enactment and ceremonies of renewal. God always wants us to be renewing the covenant. That's why we do the Lord's Supper every week. That's why the church always did the Lord's Supper every week until modern times. It was after the birth of the Anabaptist movement that some Christians began to practice communion only monthly or only annually or something like that. So... Um, in terms of the church calendar, in terms of the lectionary, that's why we read what the church decided is that we, we have, are the only faith in the world that our, the truths of what we believe are not rooted in concepts that are philosophical or theological. They're rooted in the historical events sur surrounding one person, the person of God himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. So our faith is rooted in actual history. Every, you know, there are myths about Muhammad, and there are historical realities about Muhammad. There's myths about Buddha and historical realities about Buddha. But the reason the first 17 books of the Old Testament and the first five books of the New Testament are books of history, and that they are actually the foundation, unlike modern times where Christians start with the epistles, you, you have to start with the Gospels because our faith is rooted in what God actually did in the first event, the coming of Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection, and his ascension, and the outpouring of his spirit, and the birth of the church at Pentecost. Our faith is rooted in real, real historical events. And the epistles help us have interpretations of those, much like the wisdom literature and the and the prophets help us have interpretations of what the seven, first 17 historical books mean. Because God has always had an eternal purpose, 
He lives outside and above time. He lives outside and above space. He's above what's called the time-space continuum. And he has an eternal decree, and he's working in the events of time and space toward a predetermined outcome in Christ Jesus, and that is to have a people for his own possession who will be so filled with his nature, his character, and glory that will live in, in communities all over the earth in such a way that they will bring back the glory of God and the manifest presence of God to all the lost peoples of all the earth. And the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the knowledge color of cover, as the waters cover the seas, and then the Lord will come back to receive a kingdom prepared for himself. That's not the popular modern eschatology, but that's what the church always understood and believed. That's what the scriptures actually teach. Not the modern escapists. We're going to be cowering in the corner and the Antichrist might beat us up and get us. Oh my God. And he at this twister. Oh. Romans 14. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day. Each person must be fully convinced. When you see the word alike in italics, it's because the translators always put the word in italics when they're adding a word that's not in the Greek to help the English sound better to us. So always read it without the italics word to think about what it means. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day. Period. That's what he meant to say. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. And he who eats, does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat. And he who gives, and he gives thanks to God, and so forth. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, and so forth. So, one of the New Testament realities that we live in is that all of the feasts of the Old Testament are foreshadowings of the historical events of Christ. And what's important is not the shadow of the outward kernel, but the substance of what it's about. Who it, and it's about the substance is Christ himself. And so the church un, rightfully understood that God gave uh, all the festivals, the, the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths, uh, and all that kind of stuff. He gave those as foreshadowings of Christ and, and foreshadowings of the events of Christ's life. God has visited his lost and, and, and confused and broken and evil, twisted people with salvation in the person of Christ in the events of his life. So the church basically over the first few centuries began to realize, hey, God gave those things for two purposes. One is devotional. Now, m most Christians, with, with the rise of the Anabaptist movement, and then particularly with the rise of evangelicalism after the Civil War, many Christians rejected the idea of having like uh, any kind of liturgy in your worship because if we had no form or liturgy, we would be more open to the Spirit. And God knows we need types of meetings and worship and home groups and different things where we're open to the movement of God's Spirit. The church has for too long been a nonprofit organization. And uh, we, we really need to, to seek and cultivate the power of God in our midst. On the other hand, there's a body of historical events that we need to teach our children and our children's children, and we need to review them to prepare our hearts. 
Both the purpose of Advent and the purpose of Lent is to remind ourselves of what actually every day is, the day of the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart as, as you would in the past. So what modern Christians do is have these false dichotomies from taking one line of biblical truth that's supposed to be balanced against another line of biblical truth and held in what I call dynamic tensions. So you'll have all kinds of Christians who, you know, and then there's cultists like Jehovah's Witnesses say you can't, you know, you can't celebrate Christmas and that and all this stuff, and we, you know, we shouldn't be bound by any church calendars and that. One Christian understands uh, that we need to regard every day. Every day is Lent. Every day is Advent. Every day is the birth of Christ again in our hearts. Every day is his death, burial, and resurrection. Every day is resurrection day. And every day is a holy day unto the Lord. But we humans have trouble living there. So we don't, one of the things that if you take all the readings uh, that I have listed here and more and read the whole Bible as a whole, you'll see is what Paul is getting after is not that Christians should observe the days as teaching devices or as devotional literature, but as something required to be considered righteous before God. The, the New Testament puts the axe to the root of all performance bases approach to God, as the Old Testament did, yet they still continued to practice uh, performance-based righteousness. That's what Paul means in Romans 10 when he says, I bear witness that I, I wish that I could cut off, be cut off for Israel for the sake of, of the elect you know, of Israel. Uh, and he goes, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Because not knowing about God's righteousness, they sought to establish their own. That performance base, seeking to establish your own righteousness and seeking, the, the whole reason 7th and 8th grade boys have cut down wars is they think that if I put someone else down, I'll lift myself up. It's the whole reason prejudice exists. It's the whole reason people have schemes in their heart and mind of trying to be a little better than someone else in their mind or heart. It's the whole reason husbands and wives are very good at you know, how it's the other one's fault. And roommates are good at that. And, and uh, all kinds of people are good at knowing how it's the other person's fault, but they have, have a little more trouble seeing the logs in their own eye. So, the scriptures, if you take them as a whole, really reveal that every day is the Lord's day, but there's no problem with, and it's in fact encouraged, to go through the events of our Lord Jesus Christ's life and, re, and use them on an annual basis to, to remember the most important events of his life and teach them. Now, no one knows if Christmas is December 25th. I've read some very interesting articles that do the math from when Zechariah appeared to, to uh, um, when the angel appeared to Zechariah in the temple and told him about John the Baptist coming. And if you do the math, uh, assuming that in Luke, when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, that that's been six months exactly, and if you do all the math, Christmas comes out to December 25th. On the other hand, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the reason the early church chose December 25th, which really wasn't a, kind of a, an established practice until about the 4th century, was because the early church had a view 
that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And what we're here to do is take back everything Satan stole, every lesson of life in the stars and the heavens that, that has been perverted and twisted to false worship of the creature and the creation and not the creator. And we are to redeem everything. And so there, there was a Roman holiday that celebrated the winter solstice. And what I like, love about Christmas season, I always love getting prepared in my heart in November and December because the days are getting shorter. And after that disgusting daylight savings time switch, uh, then it gets dark nice and early. And I sit around and think about that when darkness seemed to be at the highest zenith of its power, light broke into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And that light will shine brighter and brighter until the fullness of the day, as every day is a parable of that. In God's creation, he made it that way. It's always darkest before the dawn. And the rising of Christ's light is still rising and will continue to rise until the earth is filled with the glory of God. All of creation teaches us this. So Colossians, when it says, don't let anyone act as your judge regarding a, a festival or a new moon or so forth, we don't have to do these things to be godly. If you don't like the church calendar idea, fine. But, uh, you know, but it's important to understand that these things are a shadow of what was to come. And we have to know that the substance is Christ himself, and we have to hold fast to that head. That's why if one of the things you'll see if, is people take any kind of observance of any kind of day, the Passover supper and, and the, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also booths, and the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, which is also first fruits. All of these things had lots of traditions around them that weren't biblical and weren't good and so forth and so some people like want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. we're going to talk about the feast of innocence today and i'm going to tell you a couple of the funny traditions that have developed over the centuries in celebrating that but that doesn't mean we shouldn't redeem them and get a hold of the biblical uh, meaning and purpose of it does that make sense and uh the truth of the matter is most people don't hold fast to the head of christ because most people don't know where they're jointed or ligamented in the body of Christ. The word for ligament or being jointed together in the body of Christ is actually the, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, it's actually the word for covenant. Because if your elbow didn't have a covenant holding these, whatever the names of these bones are with these bones, and you moved your elbow, it would just pop over to, to all sorts of directions. And there wouldn't be any supply of life going through if they weren't connected by covenant. Today, you know, if you, if you look at any anemic Christian who's struggling, who's not growing, who's battling this and that and the other thing and not breaking through and so forth, the first thing you'll notice is they're not relating properly to the body of Christ. Nor are they usually relating properly to his spirit or his word the delivery systems of grace that God has given them. So I wish I could go on to give us more on that. But if you don't know, and if you have any kind of trouble with why we follow this church calendar concept, get with John, get with me, uh, 
get with any Jason or any of the leadership team and we'll go through it with you. Now, today we're going to talk a little bit about the 12 days of Christmas that developed in the East and the West. And some of it developed because in the East, uh, January 6th was looked at as Christmas for a few centuries and December 25th was in the West. And eventually it kind of worked out that uh, in the that they kind of uh, made the whole thing a season uh, that culminates in the um, in the, what's called Epiphany in on January 6th. And I'm not going to talk about Epiphany because John will probably talk about it next week. I'm guessing, and um, I certainly uh, I certainly don't uh, want to rain on his parade there. But Epiphany typically celebrates when the wise man uh, following the star found Jesus in Bethlehem, which uh, according to the scriptures, the shepherds who the angels appeared to him probably found him that very night, whereas the wise men probably found, uh, did in the upcoming days or weeks. And uh, the reason we think of three wise men is because of the three gifts. There's nothing in scripture that tells us there was three of them. There could have been 20 of them. But, um, all right, nevertheless, so uh, as far as the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, I gave you a website there if you want so, want to look it up, that you could look up something that's kind of interesting, and that is, you know, we, we miss literary things today because, again, when evangelical fundamental controversy began to emerge, the liberals threw out the historicity of the scripture in favor of the histor- of the narrative, without calling it historical narrative like we call it. And the evangelicals and fundamentalists reacted by saying, no, it's literal. Therefore, you can't read story or literary things in the scripture. You can only say the exact facts of what happened. You can't put a meaning to them. But that's what the prophets do. That's what the scripture does. That's what the, new, the epistles do. They put a meaning to the events of the history. Right? So, in the 12 days of Christmas, you'll, if you want to look it up, every one of the 12 days and all the gifts that were given were representatives of various aspects of Christ. The whole song is about, about the coming of Christ. And each of the turtle doves and everything else has symbolic meaning in, if you, for those people who know their Bibles and know the symbolism of the Bible. <clears throat> so, enjoy the song. It's a very Christian song. All right. Uh, now, the, uh, by the 5th century, three feasts had developed right after Christmas Day, or Christmas Tide, Christmas. Um, and they were, called, they were the Feast of Stephen, the Feast of, of John, and the Feast of Innocents. Now, they are December 26th, 27th, and 28th, respectively. And all these bring out the point that John has emphasized several times in his last few Advent messages, that in the coming of Christ, in the the events of his birth, we must also remember the events of his sinless life, his ministry, his discipling, his miracles, his his being falsely accused, his being rejected by his disciples, by the, the Gentile governments of man, and by the people of God the, him, themselves, in a horrific death, rising again, ascending, pouring out the Holy Spirit, and reigning currently. 
all of these things need to remember is there's always a death that brings forth life. All deaths, all life is preceded by death. Even in our own Christian life, the more that we've gone to the crosses God's given us, the more we've given up things like selfish ambition and blame shifting and uh, in, in unforgiveness and spinning our ideas of why it's all Sydney's fault and not my fault and, and all these kind of th- things that we fallen men do to each other. The more we die to these things, the more the life of Christ will come. That's why uh, in marriage I usually do a sermon. That's what I'm going to do for Anvesh and Deanna soon about how today we're celebrating a death. We're here for a funeral <laughs> because the old Anvesh is going to die and the new and the old Deanna is going to die. So that's why we always have a feast after a funeral. <laughs> so, all right. So let's get into this a little bit. One of the reasons uh, these three things are so important is they represent the concept in the concept of martyring. There's a, there's an idea in church history called called being a martyr of will versus a martyr of deeds. These three martyr types of martyrs represent all the possible ways that you can be a martyr. Number one, Stephen, who risked his life for Christ. And, would, and willingly risked his life for Christ and, and received a stoning to death and was executed for his witness. The word martyr actually means witness in Greek, by the way. Marturion means, that's what Jesus, when Jesus in Acts 1 and 8 says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses. The Greek is, you shall be my martyrs. That is powerful, isn't it? And to the degree death works in us, that to that degree life can work in the people around us. They're not going to get saved by cutesy little Jesus sayings or bumper stickers. They're going to get saved by an authentic dis- demonstration of the kingdom of God among a people who really love each other and sacrificially serve each other and, and call each other to maturity and to death, 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 so that life, life, life might reign. That's what's going to be the light of Christ shining to a world. John, the Apostle John, uh, there's a couple reasons he was chosen for December 27th. Number one, because he willingly risked his life over and over and over again. Remember in Acts 4 when the Sanhedrin commands he and Peter not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And it's the only time the Bible uh, actually endorses an uh, I-can't-help-it defense. But they both say, whether it's right in the sight of God to obey men rather than God, you decide, but we can't stop speaking the things we've seen and heard. Now, I do a lot of marriage counseling and discipling and so forth. I never allow I-can't-help-it defenses. (laughs) But the Bible doesn't allow I-can't-help-it defense, except Peter and John used a, we can't help it. We got to talk about this stuff. We can't stop speaking about the things we've seen and heard in Christ. And they risked their lives every day to proclaim them. And they knew they were risking their lives. Now John and all the other disciples died uh, as martyrs. John was sentenced to death several times 
and then like Daniel in the lion's den, survived that sentencing time and time again. He was even boiled in oil. That's why he was on the Isle of Patmos uh, when he received the, the book of Revelation. And in the spirit, the reason he was in the spirit on the Lord's day is he understood the body of Christ enough to say, even though I'm on a desert island by myself, I'm going to get up early and worship. I'm not going to miss, miss the Lord's day with my brethren. I'm not going to be late. I'm not going to be unprepared. This is the day the Lord has made. This is a special day. We come together as a community of believers to worship the Lord. We get up at dawn and do it. The early church didn't wait till 9 o'clock to have meetings. <laughs> Tried doing that today in America. And uh, they had their meetings at dawn. And uh, because they were celebrating the resurrection and the beginning of light coming into the world. That's why the, the Gospels make it very clear that they ran to the tomb at, and the, the resurrection happened at the first light at dawn. Okay, so John represents those who willingly are willing to be executed, but were not. Now, some people also speculate that they chose John out of the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because John, uh, I put the eagle has landed, because that was what, wasn't that what, was it, no, it wasn't Neil, Alan Shepard, I think, said that, didn't he? When uh, they landed on the moon the second time, then he said the eagle has landed. But the whole, you know, uh, the Gospels are typified by the face of a man or the face of angels. Uh, the face, uh, uh, which is Matthew, of course. Uh, the face of an ox, which is uh, Mark. Uh, or the face of a man is usually Luke. It depends on whose version. The lion, which is often Matthew, and most, you know, there's different schemes of this as you go through church history. Even if you took, like, the church fathers, they didn't all agree which, which four should be assigned to which gospel. But usually the eagle is assigned to John, because in John's writings, we encounter both the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ fully developed, being birthed into this time-space continuum. In John's writing, in sense, the eagle has landed on earth, and is beginning to take over. Now, the Feast of the Innocents, like Hebrews 12, 24, tells us that we are the recipients of a better covenant and that the blood of Jesus speaks better than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out before God. Uh, we always talk about four different reasons, but the one that's most pertinent here this thing is coming apart, is, uh, is that um, Abel shed his blood involuntarily, whereas Christ said, I lay down my life, no one takes my life from me. He shed his blood voluntarily. When they told him, why are you going towards Jerusalem? Don't you realize that Herod's looking for you and that the Sanhedrin is, you know, plotting your death and so forth, you really ought to stay up in northern Galilee where it's a lot safer. And Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem when it was time for his, for his betrayal and death and, and his uh, passion and so forth. And he said, go tell that fox, which was not a compliment, uh, <laughs> that uh, today and tomorrow I, I travel towards Jerusalem and
And the third day I reached my goal. He laid down his blood voluntarily for us. The innocent suffered involuntarily. Like Abel in the Bible, and like someone else should come to your mind, the children of Israel in the time of Pharaoh. Remember if, if, uh, Exodus chapter 1 and 2, things around verse 6, it starts with a Pharaoh rose that knew not Joseph, and he puts them in bondage and so forth, and then they still continue to grow, and the midwives fear God rather than man, so they don't follow the Pharaoh's decree to put the boys to death and and so forth. And so, uh, and of course, so there, there's all, all these lessons in this. Now, there's... Three, three parallels that you should see in Scripture would be the story of the Exodus and Pharaoh's desire to kill all the, the next generation of the move of God, and that it was the one that escaped that did him in, that was the foreshadowing type of Christ, right? Herod's desire to do the same. Herod was a wicked, paranoid person. Now, if you've ever studied Joseph Stalin and some of his psychology, uh, Herod was very similar to Joseph Stalin. He was hated by the Jews of his day. He was a very wicked man. Uh, he had put to death his own sons because he was afraid uh, that they might kill him to become kings and so forth. Uh, you know, he was, he was an extremely paranoid, wicked, evil figure. And the Jewish people hated him. And he lived in this constant fear that there would be, you know, that these prophecies about the Messiah would come to pass and that uh, he would be replaced as king. So when he found out the wise men didn't do what he said and come back and tell him after they found the Christ, he was enraged and he went and killed all the children of Bethlehem. Now, there's no way to know how many children are involved. Estimates are as low as 20 and as high as hundreds of thousands of children. But that's not really the point. You know, there was a debate at one time that some people say a million Jews died in, in, uh, in Europe and the, the number of six million was an inflation. Well, if you have to be, if, you know, if you have to, if you're not tr thinking it's tragic over one million, I don't know what number you're going to think it's tragic over. I don't, you know, like... Um, Nobody knows how many innocents were involved. But what Matthew does is he do, he ties this in. Let's let's let and I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to give us uh, six or seven I guess seven lessons out of out of these three parallel passages. In Exodus you have the the you know the trying to kill all the Egyptian males, Moses escapes. In Matthew you have trying to kill all the Hebrew males. Jesus is the one who escapes. In Revelation 12, you have the dragon trying to kill all the, um, the male children of the woman, the woman being the church, the, the male children representing the next generation of God's authority and deliverance in the earth. And uh, you, have, you have the dragon trying to devour the child as it comes forth because children are most vulnerable when they're first born. And you have the, the, children, the, the woman being taken up by God uh, there's teachings that that represents praise and worship and so forth, different things, but being taken up by God to be nurtured and so forth, and that, uh, that, that God himself will protect the next generation of the body of Christ. And by the way, if you don't think these things are relevant, one thing you should understand, get a, get a, or you got to go online and sign up for emails from Voice of the Martyrs or somebody like that. 
because there have been more martyrs for Christ in the last hundred years than in all the centuries of church history combined. And so the slaughter of the innocents is something very much with us every day. Our brethren are dying for their witness for Christ throughout the whole world. And the news media tries to gloss that over. And you're never going to get that from the modern leftist media. But it's well documented. It's part of what this whole ISIS thing is so tragic about. Historic churches that could date back to the first century with documents that date back to the first century have been burned by ISIS as they take over various churches and burn them and burn all their books and things. Some of those books go back to the times of the apostles themselves. So forth. So... Uh, these, these are issues that are very... So, here's the first thing. The reality and depth of evil. If there's anything that characterizes the modern church, it's trying to sh make the, the reality of evil too shallow. Most people have too shallow of a view of the evil inside of themselves. Let God show you your wickedness. Because it's beyond... If he showed it to you all at once, you would die. You would. So ask God to continue to reveal your pride and your selfish ambition and your rebellion and uh, all the things that aren't that godly in our hearts. Be because then you'll realize you need a deliverer, a rescuer, not a little churching up and a little daily meditation program. And I just need to go to church once a week and read my Bible one or two times a week and go about my middle-class American life and pursue my, me, 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 me. If you ask God to put a, you know, like the psalmist said, to put a guard on my mouth, ask God to put a guard on your heart. I seek this all the time. God, help me see how often I am able to see the specks in my brother's eyes when I'm not noticing the logs in my eyes. And ask God to over and over and over again change your orientation so that you're first and foremost dealing with who you are before God. That is a journey only he can take you on, and you have to cry out to God for it. Because, you know, our evils, you know, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? There are places in the prophets that I can't even talk about at church, although the kids are downstairs, where our evils compared to menstrual rags and afterbirth. Not to mention feces and a few other things. We're not that glorious. You know, the French village house in the Enlightenment was all about the glories of man and so forth. Med I always try to meditate on that when I'm sitting on the john. <laughs> We're not... It stinketh. <laughs> King, King James. Uh, it's bad. If God shows us the depravity of our hearts, woe is us. God help us to see our pride and how it hides in a thousand ways. And how everyone else is at fault except us. Secondly, understand that all through the Bible, Satan and the state are highly correlated. And wherever Christianity and the value of the individual and stuff has spread, 
constitutional and other kinds of limitations on the power of the, sta of the state have come about. And wherever darkness is increasing in paganism, then the power of the state is increasing. All ancient civilizations were statist with cults of emperor worship, and the emperor was totalitarian and had to be obeyed. And what the, 20, what the birth of 20th century humanism gave us, Karl Marx, a direct quote in the Communist Manifesto, he said, communism is a humanism. Communism is based on an evolutionary worldview, a non-creationist worldview. It's based on a very unbiblical doctrine of, of where all, all philosophies and worldviews have a doctrine of sin. In other words, every philosophy you recommend, re recognizes something is terribly wrong with mankind. But then the explanation of it is what's the problem. So in communism, it's, it's the fault of the, of the property-owning class and the educated class. So whenever communists take over, they confiscate all the property, keep, kill all the property owners, and kill all the educated people. The reason Stalin had to make a pact with, with Hitler to not invade was because he had just purged 3,800 generals of his army and leaders of his army, and he wasn't ready for Hitler. <laughs> He was buying time because he was constantly purging, like Herod, everyone around him. We have way to, to uh, I am so uncomfortable with, uh, you know, the liberal versions of the church loving the Democrats and the conservative versions of the church loving the Republicans, and I don't like either nor do I like the idea that the federal government should solve problems at all. Whoever is going to be your savior will inevitably must become your master. It must take more of your labor and more of your money and limit your freedoms more and more and more. I'm hoping that the Texans will secede from the Union. <laughs> I think the country should break up into eight or ten smaller countries anyway. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the original Constitution didn't just limit the federal government by three branches fighting with each other, but by whatever was not specifically given to the federal government was reserved by the states and the people. And nobody understands that anymore especially public school kids. Because they're not taught that anymore. None of my students, I never had a student at Sinclair that understood that at all. Nor that, that you know, hundreds and hundreds of things that today's presidents do, the Supreme Court doesn't, the Constitution doesn't allow them to do. Hundreds of things the Supreme Court does, the Constitution doesn't allow them to do. We have ceased to have a rule of, of law and of a constitution, and we have the arbitrary rules of men. And we have a very, very, very dangerous situation where state power is growing, growing, growing. And it will do so at the promotion of cultures of death and tyranny and slavery of all kinds. Uh, all through the Bible, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, all the way to Caesar, are equated... Emperor worship is equated with Satan worship. And God has, the reason the church needs to be restored is that the institution of salvation that God has, has, has entrusted things to is the church, not the state. 
Next, uh, look at Egypt with Moses, Rome with Christ, and, and abortion with the current coming body of Christ. Abortion has become a worldwide phenomenon. It's even mandatory in some countries if you to, to be only have so many babies, and if you have a, above then, you have to abort the babies and so forth. Now, recently, that's actually changed in communist China. Nevertheless, millions of babies were killed for the doctrine that you can't have more than one baby. Now, at the height of the Enlightenment, there was a guy named Thomas Malthus who wrote a book called Principia Geometrica. The reason it's important, and you should know it as a Christian, is he it was the first to postulate that the, the earth is getting too populated. In other words, it was the anti-be-fruitful-multiply-and-subdue-the-earth doctrine. And that the reason there's, there's poverty and the reason there's famine and want and so forth is just there's too many people, which is just nonsense. Drive through Iowa, then tell me that. <laughs> I hope you don't get lost in the cornfields. It's nonsense. Uh, famine and, and starvation and so forth has always been the work of man's evil governments, never been a lack of land available for cultivating. Now, the reason the slaughter of the incidents is important is because abortion is, is, is a seamless in, issue with a culture of death. The reason the rising of paganism, the rising of all kinds of goth and occult things and, and pagan worship and so forth has accompanied the doctrine of abortion is because those who hate Christ love death. Colossians tells us that in Christ are, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Proverbs 8 tells us those who hate wisdom, who is Christ in the scriptures, love death. All unbelievers are killing themselves. Hebrews tells us that they are subject to slavery through the fear of death. So people who aren't walking in the Spirit are killing themselves, but they're just not getting out a gun and doing it. They'll smoke themselves to death, drink themselves to death, eat themselves to death, uh, or do whatever kind of destructive behaviors you might say. But it's because they're rebelling against the life God gave them. And that's why, you know, the culture, uh, some, of, some of the more angry versions of metal music and so forth that are, that are so involved in nihilism. Nihilism is a type of existentialism. And existentialism is a humanistic philosophy that says, deep down inside myself, I have this sense that I ought to have an eternal purpose for being here. But I'm not willing to acknowledge God. Therefore, there could no, no, be no possibility of a purpose and that's existentialism to a T. Nihilism takes it one step further and says, I'm mad about that. Because darn it, deep inside, I think there, I ought to be, have some real value and some real purpose. But I can't find any philosophical basis for one. And that's not how it should be. I'm really mad at God about it, even though I deny God. I'm, I hate God. I'm mad at God. That's what atheist means. Atheists are always haters of God. Not deep down, they, there's no athe real atheist. They're just lost people who deep in their heart are rebelling against God and against life itself and therefore are engaged in all sorts of self-destructive ways of life. 
Nihilism, is, which has become very popular in certain kinds of music and art and so forth, is basically the idea that because I'm mad about this, before I kill myself, I'm going to do as much destruction to society as I can. That's, and if you have that philosophy, you'll sell lots of music and become rich. So uh, these, are, these are huge issues. The culture of death it, and, and abortion are hand in hand because with, with culture of abortion comes arguments for euthanasia. Maybe because don't they say, like, all the time, I hear over and over, I, I actually support several causes at times for guy, kids that uh, were born because the doctor showed them an ultrasound and said, this kid's going to be born with this or that problem. You should abort him. Abortion is used by the advocates of a utopian uh, ideal, a view of man that life that has any problems is not worth living. I love people with problems. I'm the pastor of, I'm pastor problems, and I pastor a church with problems. <laughs> Come to our church, pastor problems will help you. <laughs> know that God created you with problems so that you might seek him and find him. The culture of death is, is the whole slippery slope idea is, is ridiculed by the culture of death people. They just don't know anything about history. The idea that life should be valued and, and sacred and, and protected is a relatively minor viewpoint in modern times in terms of the history of man. Man's history is filled with slaughters of billions of innocent people. The idea um, that it's that uh, if you allow abortion, it's going to spin off the euthanasia. And they they ridicule that idea because they just don't know anything about history. You know that's why. You know if there is one good thing about the Republicans, there's five or ten percent of them are pro-life or so, and all the Democrats are pro-death. And so, you know, when Obama became president, all the pro-life stuff was down off of the president's website the day of his inauguration. And, and the uh, um, Veterans Administration began to, to republish pamphlets that Bush had gotten rid of on why you should consider, if you're suffering and you're older, why you should consider killing yourself. And they, and they see that as some kind service that, that we should do is provide people that are suffering with pamphlets about why killing yourself is a good option. If you can't see how close that is to Nazi Germany, you're just willfully blind. History from Moloch worship all the way on has been about human sacrifice and so forth. You know what Moloch worship was? Moloch's mentioned several times in the Old Testament. He was one of the Canaanite gods. and They would heat him up until his hands glowed red, and then they would put a live baby in his hands to be burned to death. Moloch, the spirit of Moloch is the spirit behind abortion. 
you know, it's it's not like they, they haven't known scientifically for more than 40 years that the babies try to escape from the abortionists. They run from the saline solution. They try to, they run from the instruments of abortion. They are in pain and they are being tormented and their life is being snuffed out because the church doesn't care enough to be their voice. Because it's too radical to carry a picket sign or something. Let me just have my better stereo and watch my entertainment center so I don't have to think about reality because it's too painful. Whenever a culture becomes pagan, one of the things you, you can watch is it, wherever there's been Christianity and paganism reemerges, like we see all through Europe, like we see in Los Angeles and the streets and so forth, the ancient spirits of that land will reassert themselves. In all evil spirits love the culture of murder. Satan was a murderer from the beginning and the father of it. And if an unborn baby in the womb isn't to be protected, who is? Then older people aren't to be protected. Poor people aren't to be protected. That's why abortion goes hand in hand uh, with the whole um, eugenics movement which basically says we should do all these things to keep the dark people of the earth from populating. That's what, that's what Planned Parenthood was all about. Margaret Sanger, all of the eugenics uh, philosophers that birthed Planned Parenthood were brought by Hitler over to Nazi Germany to teach his, his SS and, and the, and the um, not fascist German socialist Nazi party uh, the importance of eugenics, because the, the, it's the whole concept that there's a superior biological product in the earth and an inferior, and we should wipe out the, the inferior. And we should kill them at every turn. And the spirit of abortion, that's why 38% of abortions are on black babies, when the population of America is about 13% black. Three Per capita, that's three times as many abortions on black babies. That's why the Planned Parenthoods are always in the black and Hispanic neighborhoods, because they want to kill the black and Hispanic people. It's, it's not man, Fallen man is not ethically neutral and just lost. He hates God, he hates life, and he hates each other. Let me tell you how I feel, really feel. The Ten Commandments are seamless. The, in the Bible, the first represents the whole. So if you have other gods beside him, you will break all the others. And then they break down into two sections. And the first of the second section is thou shall not kill, because all of the others are a type of killing. Stealing is a type of killing. Stealing is saying, I don't care how many hours it took you to to work to, to, to buy that truck. I like monster trucks with big wheels, so I'm just taking your truck. Socialism is when your brother got more gifts and toys than you did, so you kill your brother to take his toys. That's the essence of socialism philosophy in a nutshell. Stealing is murder. Coveting is murder. Let me say that again. 
Coveting is murder. Ask God to show you coveting in your heart. Coveting is murder. And it's inextricably intertwined with, with human trafficking. Now, we're living in a time of gross darkness covering the face of the earth. The church has been reduced to irrelevant, pietistic messages about heaven. And therefore, even though church numbers are growing worldwide, church influence is not radically changing cultures like it once did. Because the message has been reduced culturally. And therefore, we have a worldwide human trafficking movement because it's the same as the worldwide abortion movement. It's a devaluing of man and of each individual. Do you know why the corporations of Europe and America have a lot of their trade shows in Brazil? Because Brazil has the most human trafficking of any places in the earth, and because the, the billionaire leaders of these corporations throughout America and, and, and Europe want to go to Brazil so they can buy little boys to have sex with against their will. If you don't think man is more wicked than you think, you're, you're putting your head in the, in the, and the church today is putting its head in the sand. No one wants to think that man is this wicked, but man is this wicked. And it first starts with a radical change in us. Now, I got to keep going. Flip over. Matthew's quoting of Jeremiah foreshadows the covenant lawsuit, which is what Matthew's all about. Because Matthew, when he quotes Jeremiah, Jeremiah is weeping after the deportation to Babylon in the second captivity. So that's when Rachel was weeping for his children. And what he's basically saying, this Christ has come to Israel, and Israel is going to reject their Christ. And Israel will pay a terrible price of being destroyed for it. as happened in 24, Matthew, you know, as prophesied in Matthew 23, 24, and 25, and so forth, and experienced in 70 AD. This verse is actually foreshadowing that. So how do we navigate all this? It's really important to understand. When God is doing stuff, that doesn't mean all we're allowed to have in our hearts as Christian is forgiveness, reconciliation, compassion, love, so forth. It's never, we're never allowed to, to make judgments. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And, you know, people, the, when, Pete, when a man turns to Christ, all judgments and all curses are broken in Christ. That's why there can be no prejudice in the family of God if it's really the family of God. Because anyone reborn in Christ is a brother and sister of God. And if you don't love your brothers and sisters, you don't love God. First John tells us that, right? That's why Herod is at the beginning of Matthew and Barabbas is at the end of Matthew, like bookends. It's a literary device. Because they were told, who do you want? Do you want the son of the father, or do you want the son of the father? Barabbas means son of the father, right? 
Do you want the son of the father, that is the humanistic solution to man? Or do you want God's solution to man? You can't have both. There's no fellowship between Christ and Caesar. Right? Paul says that. But there's no fellowship between the state and the church. Doesn't mean we shouldn't influence the state. And I'm trying to be careful not, I'm out of time, I'm trying to be careful not to be misunderstood here. Um, the fact that Matthew is foreshadowing the destruction that would come on Jerusalem in this passage doesn't make it any less an object of our compassion, okay? If you understand things biblically. That's why Jesus himself stood in, in Matthew 23 after three chapters of blasting the leaders of Israel for rejecting his ministry over and over and telling parables about how a man had a vineyard and, and all that kind of stuff. And he sent one servant after another and they killed one servant and then the other servant. And finally he said, I'll send my son, but they killed the son. He t they knew they were, that he was speaking the parables against them and so forth. That's why he stands on the Mount of Olives <laughs> Oh, I can't get into all that. <laughs> but uh, um, in, in Matthew 23, at the end of all that diatribe of woe this, woe that, at the end, eight woes in Matthew 23, he cries over Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. How often I've wanted to gather you under my wings as a mother hen, it's Matthew uh, 37, 23, 37 through 39. How often I've wanted to gather you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. Behold, your house, two chapters earlier, he called it my house, shall be a house of prayer, and now he disowns it. He says, your house is left to you desolate, which is the in the Greek is the word for Ichabod, the glory of God having departed. And then the disciples say, look at this beautiful temple. When are these things you're talking about going to be? And he says, I'm telling you, there not one stone will be left upon another. Armies will surround Jerusalem. And he's talking about not the end times, but the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But hear Jesus' heart toward it. One of the things you have to understand, um, one of the prophets calls judgment God's strange work. Like any, if, you're, if you ever preach on hell and you're not weeping, you kind of miss the point. If you, yeah, this world is full of judgments and it's a harsh and cruel world. And the problem of pain and suffering is a deep and tough problem. Why do the righteous suffer and so forth? But if, you're, if your heart is not filled with love and compassion, you're, you, you misunderstand the whole thing. Well, I've already talked, I guess, a little bit about the Feast of Innocence and contemporary worldwide darkness. The abortion holocaust is worldwide. There are all kinds of organizations, including the United Nations, who fund abortion worldwide, but especially in Africa. They want to increase abortions in Africa. Child labor... You know, there was a time when I really liked Victorian things and 
Victorian decor and all that kind of stuff and everything. And one, you know, at one time I had a expensive, nice Oriental rug that was actually a real one. And I got rid of it I mean, 25 or 30 years ago. Now I have fake ones that are made by machines because those Oriental rugs are made by ch children that are four, five, six years old being forced to work 14, 16 hours a day to tie the knots. One of the things, if you think this is going too far, I would encourage you to consider uh, buying products that aren't using slave labor. And if you do your homework, you can do you can limit the number of products that you're using, that you're buying from totalitarian countries and from other countries that have slave labor. Eat Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Because they're very, they're very, very adamant about not using products that are made by slave labor, even though they're a totally whacked out left wing organization. Um, last thing I want to talk about is the burden of the Lord. I wish I had left more time for this. Um, I really, I also wish I could put up the scriptures from Jeremiah that we read before. Read those over and just let me give you this. No extra, this is no extra charge, by the way. I'm going to throw this in for free at the end, even though since we're past the time, I won't charge you for it. Uh, just kidding. Not that we charge for any of this. Um, ask God to give you a burden of compassion. Ask God to, to break your heart. Ask him to do it time and time and time again. When you're in alone with God in your prayer closet, which I hope you do every day, reading your scriptures and thinking about God and wrestling with them. Ask God to grip your heart with the things that grip his heart. If you struggle with any kind of selfish problem, from sexual addictions to other kinds of addictions to, to anger management issues to unforgiveness, it's because you're too centered in yourself still. And the way out of it would be to to have God fill your heart with two things that the Ten Commandments tell us about. Number one, that God would make you love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The more you love God, the less selfish you'll be. Thank you, Jesus. Secondly, the more you love God, the more your heart will be broken by the broken. If you go through whole days without breaking down crying over people, I feel bad for you. Ask God to give you a burden that becomes powerful and real and directs your life, that causes you to work harder, to study more, to seek Him more. I say if you're struggling with Christian disciplines and things like that, the real answer isn't just to make a list and goals, that's good. But the real answer is to have God capture your heart so that you wouldn't ever not want to be in his presence. So that every day you'd want to be filled and equipped and empowered to do something about it. We live in a time of worldwide darkness. The church is, is more broken and ineffective than perhaps at any other time in human history. And there's nobody coming except the church. That's God's plan A, B, and C. And you are the church. Amen.